We're in a series called Practical Principles, Old Testament Principles for New Life in Christ. And this morning, I'm going to talk to you about when lust approaches. Moral failure doesn't just happen overnight. Occasionally, a temptation may broadside us, but more often, a, a series of slow, unattended leaks seeping from the lining of our character eventually weakens us to the point of a blowout. The next thing we know, frayed pieces of our once godly character lie strewn across the landscape for all to see. And sadly, over the last 10 or 20 years, there have been a number of crises that has caused the unbelieving world to stumble over the shameful debris left by Christians whose desire got the better of them. But it doesn't have to be that way. (laughs) God has provided a way of escape so that we don't have to give in to temptation every time it comes our way. Temptation is inevitable. There's no escaping the fact that everybody gets tempted. Temptation is unavoidable. But that doesn't mean that we have to give in to the temptations that come our way. God's word tells us that there are many happy endings. Many men and women have have, uh, dealt successfully with the lure of lust. And they've avoided or escaped the destruction that it often brings. So yeah, you and I have real hope when it comes to this ongoing battle between the flesh and the spirit. There's real hope and good news for us in this relentless battle that goes on in our members. So one story from the life of Joseph provides us with enormously good news and fresh hope. Please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 39. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, right at the very beginning, so you will have no trouble finding Genesis chapter 39. Now, just let me give you a little bit of background information on Joseph. Joseph is an Old Testament character who has ten older brothers who despise him passionately. This hatred was stirred by their father's favoritism of Joseph. Remember, he gave him a coat of many colors. He favored Joseph. That caused his brothers uh, to become very angry with him. But also, Joseph's own immaturity didn't help much. So in his anger, his brothers sold him uh, to a caravan of Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt. And then when they got to Egypt, they in turn sold him to Potiphar, who was an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was a, a, a wealthy man of high rank in the country, and he viewed Joseph probably as a, as a hired hand at best. He was really a slave in the house of Potiphar. But God regarded him differently. Genesis 39.2 tells us that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So the Lord's blessing on Joseph's life, coupled with his proven integrity, catapulted Joseph into a a place of trust and prominence. We look at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he had, all that he did to to succeed in his hands. 
And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, wouldn't that be an enviable position? The only care you've got is what you're going to have for supper. But that's, that's kind of how Potiphar lived out his life, because Joseph looked after everything else. And right now, Patty's thinking, well, that's pretty much your station in life. <laughs> you know, I look after everything. You just have to worry about what you eat. So now, having, having baited us uh, to follow this compelling tale by telling us about Joseph's fate, the narrator now sets the hook with this tantalizing detail. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I'm thinking to myself, if you're reading this story carefully, you're saying to yourself, this is some foreshadowing taking place right here. Why would he stick in this detail after all that he's talking about what, what Joseph looks after? Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So while Potiphar rested confidently in Joseph's remarkable reliability, Potiphar's wife feasted her eyes on Joseph's good looks and nice body. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Joseph immediately said no, trying to appeal to her reason and then to her conscience. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Have you forgotten? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But you know, this woman's lust was unrelenting. Unrelenting. She was not going to take no for an answer. She scoffed at preserving the sanctity of her own marriage. She ridiculed the delicate trust that existed between Potiphar and her husband. I mean, she didn't care about any of that. She only cared about one thing, and that was having her own sexual urges satisfied. That's all she really cared about. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. And so she plotted it out, and she waited until she and Joseph were the only ones in the house. The, the, the servants were gone, and, and so now she, there's no fear of being detected by the servants in the house. And I think all of this only heightened Joseph's vulnerability. Obviously, he's vulnerable, right? There's no other people in the house but this beautiful woman, Mrs. Potiphar. And there's no doubt that his hormones were revving up his desire to give in. I mean, right? He's a red-blooded man. He might have had second thoughts. Nobody's going to know. Who's going to find out? The servants are gone. Potiphar's away. Everybody's doing it. 
Why not? But Joseph reined in his sexual urges, and he exercised self-control. Mrs. Potiphar did not. (laughs) She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. See, Joseph ran away, left his garment behind, could care less, just got out of the house. He he fled, and that's exactly what the New Testament tells us to do when we face sexual temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Run stinking away. Get out of there. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Just get out of there. Run away. Flee from sexual lust. Put some, different, some distance between yourself and the temptation. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, So flee youthful passions. And you don't have to be young to have youthful passions. Right? I remember working with uh, promise keepers and doing conferences with them all across the country. And we were in one city and we gave... Well, we gave a number of altar calls, a number of opportunities for men to respond at the end of certain messages throughout the morning, throughout the afternoon. And we were on this one particular uh, altar call on sexual purity. And uh, two men came walking down the middle aisle very, very slowly. One was 75. This was, a, this was a, an altar call about sexual purity, right? 75. And his father, who's 101. Comes with a walker, very slowly. And all the, all the guys are kneeling at the front, you know, doing business with God and dealing with God, and, except this man who's standing with his walker uh, at 101 years of age. And my colleague, Steve Masterson, went and talked to him afterwards and said, Sir, why are you here? Why did you respond to this altar call on sexual purity? And he said... Well, I might be 101 on the outside, but I'm 25 on the inside. <laughs> so youthful passions don't openly overtake men who are young or women who are young. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Put good things in place of those other things along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, I think that's intending to say to us and get together in fellowship on a regular basis, hang out with people who call on the Lord from a pure heart instead of hanging out with people who call on pleasure from an impure heart. Because we, are, we become like the people we hang out with, right? We become like our friends, so choose your friends well. Choose people who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see, some things we should stand against and resist with tenacity, like bulldogs. But when it comes to sexual lust, the Bible tells us to run away, flee from sexual lust. And it might be helpful in that moment to remember that Jesus died on the cross, not only to save us from our sins, but to sanctify us and set us apart so that we could live holy lives that are pleasing to Him. And that includes purity in terms of sexual orientation and sexual love. So Potiphar's Potiphar's wife's unquenched lust suddenly turns into revenge. What is that old saying? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So Joseph scorned her 
He wouldn't give in to her tempting lure. And she got mad. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household, her servants, and said to them, See, he, Potiphar, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, You liar. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And then she told the master, Potiphar, the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So this woman's lie and her rage of revenge eventually caused Potiphar to remove Joseph from the heights of, of popularity and influence and cast him into the dungeons of obscurity. But Joseph was innocent. You know, there are so many, there are just so many good lessons in this passage. And, you know, to, to find out how the rest of the story comes out, you're going to have to keep reading in Genesis uh, on your own, maybe after today. But at least four really good lessons come to mind that will help us to say no to lust when lust says yes. When lust approaches, what should we do? Well, first of all, we must not be weakened by our situation. Several things about Joseph's situation in Egypt could have undercut his resolve to say no to lust. I mean, think, think about his position. He was trusted and secure in his job. He was extremely good-looking and popular. He was a haughty. And he was in a position of authority and autonomy. He answered to no one but Potiphar. Boy, that's a really good situation. But it's also a situation that would have made, it would have made it very easy for lust to overtake him. It would, have, it would have made it very easy for him to give in to lust instead of stand up and fight. It would have made it very easy for him to give in to lust instead of flee and run away from Mrs. Potiphar like he did. It would, have, it would have been very easy for him just to drop his guard because the situation made it easy for him to do that. So don't be weakened by the situation that you're in. Be very careful. Second, we must not be deceived by persuasion. Oh, Mrs. Potiphar's attempts to seduce Joseph were, were very bold and flattering and calculating and tantalizing. You say, yeah, but that doesn't happen today. Are you kidding me? My wife and I are convinced that women are more emboldened and more brazen today than at any other time in history. I mean, I've been propositioned when my wife is sitting right beside me. Much to our dismay. It's just like, are you kidding? This is my wife right here. And she, she's just at it. I mean, Mrs. Potiphar is bold. <laughs> Very flattering, I'm sure. No doubt she was extremely tempting to Joseph. We don't know exactly what her, her 
persuasive words were back then. I don't know exactly what she said to him, but I sure hear other messages and I know what words they're using. It comes at me every day and it comes at you every day. We know that temptation is still alive and well in planet Earth, right? If you have a pulse, you're still getting tempted. So we need to train our ears to recognize the deceit and the deceptive messages that come our way through movies and music and social media, to name a few. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And third, we must not be gentle with our emotions. Joseph refused and Joseph fled. He didn't give himself to time to think about how he was feeling about it all. You know, didn't give himself time to process his, his feelings about what she was saying about him. Hmm. It, you, you can't. You, you, temptation needs to be dealt with swiftly and with courage because there's so much at stake. And the stakes are high. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So if you reap into temptation... Uh, that's, that's what you're going to reap. You're going to reap the results of that. You reap into adultery, well, you, you're going to pay the consequences for that. You, you sow into pornography, let me tell you, you're going to reap some terrible consequences. You sow into flirtatious conversation in the office or in the classroom, you're going to reap something from that, let me tell you. Because this is a divine principle. That exists, that exists in, in, in the universe, in God's created order. It's not just for believers, it's for unbelievers too. What you sow is what you reap. So you can't mess with God and you can't afford to be gentle with your emotions. Well, you know, it's been a tough season and here I'm away at this all-inclusive with my girlfriends or my guy friends and nobody's... Are you kidding me? Don't go there. This is a battleground, folks. This is not a playground. I mean, we're on the front lines here. We're not on Pleasure Island. And you can't afford to be soft with yourself. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself. You better be hard on yourself when it comes to sexual temptation. You can't be gentle with your emotions when it comes to this. When Andre Agassi's memoir first came out, the, the key revelation in his book was this. Agassi, a, a former one-time uh, number one ranked tennis player in the world with eight grand slams to his name and millions of dollars in prize money, admitted in his book that he hated tennis. This is what he writes. I hate tennis. I hate it with a dark secret passion and always have. I hate tennis. I hate it with all my heart and still I keep playing, keep hitting all morning and all afternoon because I have no choice. No matter how much I want to stop, I don't. I keep begging myself to stop, and still I keep playing. And this gap, this contradiction between what I want to do and what I actually do feels like the core of my life. In many ways, Agassiz's struggle with tennis is like our struggle with sin. We hate it, but we do it anyway. What's up with that? You are in a battle for your heart 
and your mind. And I don't care whether you're 16 or 60. That mechanism still works the same. It's called sinful human nature. You're in a battle for your heart and mind. And not only that, parents, grandparents, you're in a battle for the hearts and minds of your kids and your grandkids. Because they are watching. And they're learning from you. How you deal with stuff. How you face temptation. They're learning from you. They're watching you. So, don't give in, and don't give up, and don't be gentle on yourself. Go at it hard. So next time somebody says, don't be so hard on yourself, you say to them, I have to go at it hard. I'm going at it hard. And fourth, we must not be bamboozled by immediate results. Don't be confused or fooled or surprised because Satan is a very crafty foe. Have you noticed? <laughs> you may say no to lust and it immediately subsides and you go, Woo, all right, I got the power. But listen to me, it will be back. Just like Mrs. Potiphar wouldn't give up, that lust, that temptation, that, that stuff is going to come back again and again. You can be sure of it. Jesus overcame temptation in the wilderness, remember? But the Bible says in Luke 4, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Does that not suggest that Satan was planning to come back? Absolutely. Resisting temptation once doesn't banish the threat forever. Temptation and lust is resilient, and man, it's going to come back again and again, and it will come back to fight another day, it will. So be on your guard. And, you know, I, I find these Old Testament principles extremely helpful. But we must remember that our victory as believers is found only in Jesus. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, which is the chapter all about the, the resurrection, the necessity of the resurrection, the veracity of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, it says this at the very end. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> the ultimate solution to this problem of lust and temptation is Jesus, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection is the basis for any victory that we might attain to. These Old Testament principles are helpful. But once you read them and understand them, then you need to run as fast as you can to the cross and kneel down there in humility at the foot of the cross and cry out for mercy and trust in Jesus. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our victory. He is our triumph. He is our success. And because we are in Christ, and because we're identified with Christ, and because we're united to Christ by faith, we also get to share in His victory. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered the heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. Thank you, Jesus. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Do you believe it? So do I. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, you know, the, the hymn writer must have been thinking about me when he penned the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. There, there, are, there are so many days when my heart randomly races in many unfruitful and unhealthy directions. And Lord, some days we wake up with our hearts running to self-pity when our disappointments loom larger than your delights. And, and Lord, some days the GPS of our heart seems to be programmed for man's approval when our insecurities are shouting down your name and your praise. And I think some days we lace up our running shoes for a, a quick jog to the land of unforgiveness and bitterness when we've been rehearsing the failures of others more than the riches of the gospel. And on, on, on still other unguarded heart days, we take these little side trips into greed and envy and lust, whining, worry, self-righteousness, and a whole smorgasbord of other destructive destinations. But today, Father, I would ask you to answer the Apostle Paul's prayer on behalf of our church family here at the gathering. Would you please direct our hearts into the lavish resources of your love and the much-needed perseverance of Jesus? Lord, by the, by the power of your sovereign goodness, would you please reel in our wandering hearts once again and send them into the glorious refuge of your love? Please. We need that, Lord. Lord, we will persevere to the end only because Jesus persevered for us, even to the cross, and will persevere in us as our only hope of glory. What a privilege it is to pray together today in the name of Jesus. But Father, we praise you for giving us a new heart. We praise you for your commitment one day to perfect that heart. Our boast today is in Jesus plus nothing for our salvation and for our victory over lust, past, present, and future. And we thank you that grace is always greater than our sin. Grace is always greater than our sin. Thank you. So this morning we, we gladly and joyfully turn our eyes and our thoughts to Jesus because he's the only one who can give us victory. And we pray this in his triumphant and glorious and victorious name. Amen.